My name is Jason Severano Lampkin. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? Well, out the game where you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it, I could and still do. For the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at oh, all? Yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much. Yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Market, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to Jason Lampkin. I'm Jason Severano Lampkin. I'm half English, half Spanish, uh, and I'm a former footballer. I grew up in the hills of North Wales, and I spent the last six years between New York City and London studying and working. Joining me on today's episode is the effervescent, the uh, the the dressing gown clad Ryan Pulford. How are we, mate? Very good, thanks, mate. Very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm not so bad. I'm not so bad on this fine. Fine Sunday morning, so yeah. it is. Um, yeah, lovely. I'm not bad. Just the two of us today. Just the we can two make of it us. if we try. Yeah, I mean we will. We're without Ant today. <laughs> he'll be here. Uh, he'll be back next time, I'm sure. But just the two of us today. So let's make a start. We're gonna move on to our opening question before we get on to today's episode. Tomorrow, Brighton will be playing Newcastle in the Premier League in a relegation six-pointer. Though apparently. After further research, only three points are available to either side. So, Ryan, what I want from you, mate, is hit me with your favourite relegation six-pointer. Ah, do you know, I thought about this and I, I kept accidentally going down the route to this great escape. Yeah, um, and I did that as well. And I was going to come up with Wigan uh, when they just, Amiyazaki just went into beast mode and they just won <laughs> it like Anfield and they beat yeah. United and they beat Arsenal. But I had to laugh because... When I thought, I know that's not really the question, I, I was looking for something really exciting and I ended up going with Barnsley Huddersfield, <laughs> which was exciting, but for the wrong reasons. I don't know if you remember this game. They both, do, yeah. the way the results went, they both needed a point to stay up yeah. and it was two all and they just kept the ball <laughs> two all <laughs> and they didn't even make an attempt to score. Yeah. And then both sets of fans were singing Yorkshire, Yorkshire. <laughs> and it probably shouldn't have been allowed to happen. There's no way around it. So it just, oh, it's just so Yeah, funny. how do you even like, because that's nothing happened, you can do. That's happened in like World Cup games, hasn't it? In group stages games where yeah. both teams, like if we draw, Sweden we and through, it yeah. wasn't the two Scandinavian teams, did it? Well, it's <laughs> just... like Sweden versus Denmark and it was nil nil. And the fans were all holding hands or something and they both went through. <laughs> <laughs> holding hands. I mean, that's just their that's just their more idyllic way of life up there um but yeah no i i don't even know what you'd do you can't like be like score try and score i know yeah it, it's just one of those bizarre things i suppose so <laughs> who did you pick well do you know when you said about great escapes because that was the thing that i ended up going down a rabbit hole of some absolutely lovely ones as well um but do you know what i realized when i was looking for an answer for this question <laughs> I realised that last day kind of relegation battles are the only time you ever hear the word permutations. Yeah. You never hear it in any other context in life. And then on relegation day, like a relegation battles day, it's like, I'm one of the permutations, Jeff. And it's just <laughs> so many permutations. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but I went for um, 
a game from the 2016-2017 Premier League season. Swansea 5, Crystal Palace 4. don't know if you remember this one. It was um, Bob Bradley's, uh, I think it was his first win as Swansea manager. What of only two wins that he he, he had. So (laughs) Swansea are 3-1 up, right? And then (laughs) Palace end up coming back. I think it's Ben Teke puts them 4-3 up in the 84th minute. So the 84th minute, they're winning 4-3. And then Lorente scores in the 91st and 93rd. And the thing that I love so much about this game, so I remember watching it on Match of the Day, was every single goal felt like it hit everybody in the box and then bounced off <laughs> someone's knee and went in. There were no, like, normal goals. Like, every goal was just, like, a long throw or a corner or something. And then <laughs> it hit everybody and then just bobbled into the bottom corner. Um Alan so Pardew, Sam Allardyce, the manager of a Palace. Alan Pardew. So Pardew. it was. So it was that season. So Alan Pardew got sacked four weeks later. <laughs> Mate, he got sacked three days before Christmas. Merry, <laughs> Merry Christmas, Alan. Asia P forty five. So he got sacked four weeks later. Um, and then Sam Allardyce came in. Paul Clement ended up managing Swansea. Um, kept them up to the end of the season. And Swansea and Palace both stayed up that season. Finished on exactly the same points. Interestingly enough, it was 41 they both got. Any um, five floors a great game, isn't it? Yeah, especially when both teams are terrible. And like, <laughs> it, it, I think it was raining as well, and the pitch was all muddy, and it, it was just carnage. It was one of those games where you were just like, anything could happen here. Like, I don't think you see enough of that now. So, you look at, I think, who did West Brom play last week and they drew 0 0? They play Fulham or somebody. <laughs> Anyone made the always draw. And nil-nil. you just think teams now are so scared to get beat. But back in, like, I feel like a few years ago, especially like early 2000s, like 90s, it was like, we need a win. And just pile everyone forward. <laughs> and if you get done 5-1, you get done 5-1. But now it's all like, oh, that's a good point. Move on to the next game. Yeah. No, throw everyone up front. <laughs> I feel like there is a bit of a thing this season where because teams are knackered, it's easier for them to be reactive and defend rather than being proactive and attack because it requires a little bit more mental sort of energy which they might not yeah. have because they're a bit drained which is why there's probably a lot of <laughs> crap games i mean to be honest with you, i watched i watched chelsea leeds and then i also watched a bit of crystal palace west brom and then i started watching everton burnley and i was like i just can't do it to myself i can't i can't uh, watch another one of these no no it was a good uh first thing you do after we get off this goal go watch this goal i will it was just perfect I will. Fantastic. So we're going to move on with the episode onto Jason Lamkin. Before we do so, if you enjoy today's episode or you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes, then you can hop over to iTunes, give us a five-star rating and a review. That would be very helpful and it helps us to to grow the podcast and, and reach new listeners. So Jason Lamkin, Ryan, I believe it was you who brought Jason to our attention. Do you want to give the listeners a bit of an idea as to why we wanted to speak to Jason? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was by chance, really. I was flicking through um, LinkedIn and somebody commented on one of his posts. We weren't connected, but he did this long uh, blog and there was an extract of that on his on his LinkedIn uh, post just around the difficulties and where he thinks academy football is potentially going wrong in this country and his experience of that. Um, and found it really interesting and wanted to get him on the show to to discuss it further, which we did do. So I reached out to him and he agreed to come on. And um, that, that's kind of how it came about, really just opportunist from my point of view. Um, and he's got quite a lot of experience in, in English football and American soccer, as you would call it as well, which we find quite interesting because 
we spoke about it with um, other people on the show, that education element uh, and that support network. And it's good to be able to have somebody who's got lived experience of those two things to compare them side by side to see our pitfalls or where we're strong and the, the differences culturally as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've had Mike Kinsella on and we've had Pete Lowe, who are both yeah. involved in different positions at different clubs, but in youth football at a professional level to some extent. Yeah. And we got kind of their opinions on the things that are good, things that are bad, and the things that they do to try and improve the experience for the kids that are in their academy. So it was yeah. nice to have uh, Jason on, who's been on the other side of it, and it's yeah. you know a different club again, a different different couple of clubs. But he basically saw what the the you know experience is like for academy players, particularly at a point where maybe they're not wanted anymore in the academy because of one reason or another. Um, which moves us on to the theme today's theme, which is. Once you've had an injury, it's hard to convince a club that you're going to be of worth to them. So that's our theme. That's what we've come up with. And we'll have a little bit of a chat after the episode about that. But if you've come up with any themes of your own or anything that you picked up on that we haven't discussed, then feel free to send them over to us on uh, an email, which is manmarkingpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at marking underscore man. So I'm now going to hand you over to uh, Jason Lampkin, Jason Lampkin's interview, and we will see you on the other side. You're listening to Man Marking. So, Jason, I, b- I believe as a, a youth team player, you, you had a few moves, um, starting at Tramier, joining United, if, as you touched on, and eventually becoming a, did you, I think you might have got a professional deal or print scholarship with Aston Villa. Just talk us through sort of your time as a youth player and what was good about it and, and, and what was tough about it. Nothing really particularly special about my footballing development, um, although I've always kind of excelled physically. Uh, I guess I was kind of a bit of a late bloomer. So I started at eight years old, really. That's when I started picking up uh, the ball and playing. And now you're probably thinking eight years old isn't that old. But when you consider that Man City's under five age group is split into three teams, uh, then I guess I guess I get a pass on that one. Um, I, I just started like anyone else, really. I started on my local side, Harden Rangers, which has been made famous by former professionals like Gary Speed and Michael Owen. Um, and, and that was kind of my... Prophecy, I guess. I was always supposed to be the next Michael Owen. Um, so I, I went on to play for Tranmere Rovers. Absolutely loved my time there. Um, after two years at Tranmere from 10 to 12, I was then noticed by Manchester United and signed for compensation. Uh, and I spent four years at probably the biggest academy system in the world. Uh, while it was a great time, obviously there's, there's highs and lows. Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into the, the nitty gritty of all that later on. Um, and then after Manchester United at 16, I left to go to Aston Villa. As you quite rightly said, I was on a, a scholarship. So I did my two-year scholarship. Unfortunately, a week before my 18th birthday and when I was due to sign professional form, I suffered a really bad knee injury. Um, so although I did sign professionally, and I guess I did realise my dream of becoming a professional footballer, it wasn't exactly as I'd envisioned it um, because my, my knee was hanging like a loose tooth at the time. So I did realise the dream, but it actually turned into a bit of a nightmare for a couple of years. Yeah, and just as as I mentioned, as before we get on to that, talk us through being sort of a, a 12-year-old boy in, in Manchester United, paying like a fee for you. What, what is that experience like for you, your family, and, and what were your thoughts at the time? 
it's a bit of a whirlwind when that happens. Obviously, I was 12 years old. Uh, I, I kind of had a very steep learning curve uh, and trajectory at the same time. So to me, everything was just interesting and exciting at the time. Uh, Tranmere, everything was just fun. But when I made the transition to Man U, uh, it became instantly apparent that more was expected of me. It wasn't just a pastime. You know, this was gearing up to be my future profession. It was more of a job than a hobby, as it had been. Uh, and that was not tough to take, but it was a tough transition to make, for sure. Um, I've, I've been used to knocking around with my mates and, and kind of taking things in my stride. And then at Man U, it became kind of a game of sacrifice, really. Like, you had to sacrifice your food. Um, you couldn't go out with your mates anymore. You couldn't play for the school side in case you got injured. So from 12 years of age, I, I really had to be regimented uh, and disciplined. It's, it's just not a normal childhood to have. But at the same time, you know, when things got bad and my dad and my mom were asking me, are you sure you want to do this? I said yes every single time. You know, none of my friends were playing against Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester City on the weekend. Uh, so for me, it gave me that real sense of pride and, and self-worth. And I was kind of following a path that I wanted to follow at the same time. And I suppose looking back, it was a huge commitment for your parents as well. I imagine a lot of travel, weekends and evenings, giving up. Um, and it, it, I suppose, I, I won't call it a problem, but it goes on every weekend, doesn't it? Up and down the country where once the players made the commitment, the family almost have to buy into it as well. For, for the parents, it's a big ask. I mean, I was training five times a week. Um, the catchment area for Man United, I think, or, or any academy of that age, is more or less one to two hours. So they can scout and recruit players within that range. Um, but you can imagine how, how rough that gets. Obviously, we leave school at 3.30, let's say, in the afternoon. 4.30 would be in the car. 5.30 would be at training. And we could be at training until perhaps 8.30 at night. Um, come back and, and before you know it, it's 10 o'clock at night and your whole evening's gone. And these are parents with full-time jobs. Um, so yeah, it's it's very demanding for the parents. Fortunately, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sense that my parents supported me the whole way uh, and it wasn't much of an issue. Plus, there were other players from my area so we could kind of carpool and and share the responsibility that way. So that worked out quite nicely in the end but yeah it's a big ask for for the parents of academy players and, and while it's most young boys dream to become a, a footballer did you feel like you missed out at all on sort of a, a normal teenage years of maybe going to parties or just knocking around and on the streets with your friends or, or did you not miss any of that element at all was you just all in on the football to be honest with you and i've alluded to this in some of the blogs I've written recently. If I would have made it, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Just because it's it's kind of the general amnesia that everyone shares in football. Uh, once you've made it and things are great, you don't want to think about when things go bad. Now, unfortunately, yeah. I've seen the other side of it where things went bad and I didn't really get to experience the great side of the game, uh, which is what I've worked so hard to achieve. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can't win the lottery if you don't buy a ticket. So that's how I look on on my experience with football. Uh, it's made me the happiest I've ever been. 
it's made me the saddest I've ever been. Um, and I, I think that kind of summarises it in a nutshell. Yeah, definitely. It's a great way of looking at it, really. And with, I suppose there can't be too much hindsight either because of the way it did end with, with obviously the, the terrible injury. But be, being at a team like Tramia, being at a team like Villa and, and United, two absolutely huge clubs, do you think as as a as a youngster, or if, if you went on to have children yourself who were at academies, would you advise maybe staying at a club like Tramia? Or do you think when an opportunity like United comes along, you've just got to take it? If I could turn back the clock, I would have stayed at Tramia 100%. Um, and, and that's what I'd advise any aspiring footballer, to play where they feel most comfortable and not worry about making it too early or playing for the best side. Uh, I think an analogy you could use is, or, or a phrase you could use is that football is a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, and just like the best distance runners, you need to pace yourself and know when is the best time to make that move forward. Uh, I absolutely loved my time at Tranmere. Uh, and looking back, I wish I had stayed because one, I was a big fish in a small pond um, and, and a lot more attention is, is given to the players that the uh, academy coaches think are going to go on to make it. The statistical truth is that 0.012% of players that enter an academy system will go on to play professionally. So the coaches, if they identify someone with talent uh, and someone that could potentially be part of that statistic, they're going to give them much more uh, attention and much more opportunities because that player could make the academy system 10, 20, in today's market, 50, 100 million uh, pounds. So it, it pays their wages and it, it kind of brings money to the club as well. So yeah, 100%, I would advise stay at wherever you feel most comfortable uh, until the right time to make that move comes. Definitely. I think a, a key word there is the opportunity element as well. With, with Rashford being all over the papers today, it brings us back to his story of just Marshall breaking down in a bit of a non-event Europa League game in the warm-up and he got his chance and hasn't really looked back. And I suppose no matter what the level, it's, it's about maximising those potential opportunities. Um, we, we often talk about protection of players and it's something we're going to talk about later on. But if you are a lower league club um, that does rely on bringing players through, do you think there is much protection for them in terms of players just getting poached? Because I imagine that the fee you went for was a lot for a 12-year-old in real-world terms, but in terms of football, it was probably maybe a couple of tens of thousands at most, with maybe a sell-on clause. So, how? I mean, a team like Tramia faces the impossible, really, of keeping the best talent and, and even investing in an infrastructure to support them when a Man United could come along and take the best player anyway. Lads 12 to 16 years of age do want to play for the the Man United's, the Man City's and Liverpool's of the world. So it's a very enticing prospect for them to, to kind of commit to going to that team. I think at the time when I signed uh, for my knee from Tram, it was around 30 to 40 grand. Now for, 20, uh, for 12 years old, that's, that's quite a bit of a sum, particularly considering the statistics that I just mentioned before. You know, it's not a guarantee that I was going to go on to make it. I'd shown enough early promise but at the same time, I've seen lads at 10, 12 years old who look like world beaters, uh, and I've never heard of them since. You know, I, I played in a, a tournament for Manchester United. The first year I got there, we went to Gran Canaria uh, and played in a winter tournament. We played against the likes of 
Inter Milan, AC Milan, Real Madrid, Barcelona, uh, all the biggest teams really in the European football. And I, we, I remember one one guy we played against, uh, Bayer Leverkusen, and there was a guy called Dennis Kroll. Now, you've probably never heard that name, but at the time, I thought he was going to be the next Diego Maradona. He was just unbelievable, and, and clubs would have paid whatever it, they needed to pay Bayer Leverkusen for, and eventually Barcelona did actually sign him, but he didn't go on to make it at Barcelona. So Bayer Leverkusen actually got a pretty good deal there because that player didn't go on to make it. He showed good promise. Uh, I'm not sure what they paid for him, but they, they got that and this player didn't eventually go on to, to have a glittering career that we all thought he would. So, you know, there's not really much that clubs can do to protect themselves because these players aren't tied to contracts. So you can't really negotiate value in that sense. You're negotiating value on the sense of potential. But like I said, it's it's never a sure shot. You can't guarantee that that player is going to go on to make it. So, um yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Yeah, I suppose it's all about calculated risk in, in, in that instance. My, my main concern, and that's sort of the reason why I asked the question, is because we're starting to see a shift now with level league clubs where they'll almost say, we're just going to look at a 16 to 18 category of maybe lads that are being released. So if you're at a Tramure or a Rochdale or another Northwest based club, you might say, there's no point in us having a, an 8 to 16s because if they're any good we'll lose them for a nominal fee less than it takes us to run the academy um, and the, the pathway to the first team is so far away that we likely won't be able to keep hold of them whereby is if we get them at 16 to 18 then they're not far off being in the first team so we'll focus all our energy on those categories but it would be a shame then if young lads in catchment areas no longer can can get signed up at those ages unless they're with one of the big clubs. Because um, I think Tramley did actually move to a, a 16 to 18 category only. I'm not sure if they're slowly bringing the rest in. So I think part of that was to do with relegation. Uh, but I suppose it's it's whether the PFA or the, the football league can support the lower league teams at all in, in sort of having the best players taken. But ultimately, I think it's the players and the parents' decision, isn't it? Um, just coming on to, to that time at Aston Villa and the career engine and an injury you suffered. First of all, could you just talk us through the incident and, and then we'll move on to sort of the impact that injury had on you? Bringing back to bad memories. Um, <laughs> Sorry but, about that. No, nah, <laughs> it's all good. Uh, it was actually on YouTube for a number of years, so that, that was a nice little reminder. Um, yeah, it was in the Youth Cup of the semi... Uh, sorry, in the semi-final of the Youth Cup. Uh, we were playing at, on Villa Park against Newcastle and it was the first leg. So so obviously we were all very excited. It was 1-1 and I was pushed up front um, to exploit the back line with my pace. I was a, a very fast player and someone played a ball, perfect ball in behind. Uh, and I managed to wrestle my way in front of Paul Dummett. Um, now, just as we were running, he barely clipped the bottom of the studs on my right leg. Uh, but when I planted my leg, it kind of did a full 180 and my knee went one way and and my quad went the other. Um, so yeah, that was, it was really painful. And I knew straight away something had happened. And, and when I'd had the scan afterwards and, and I'd been rushed off the uh, the turf with Gatineau, I'd found out that I'd done my ACL, MCL and both uh, medial and lateral menisci. 
So if you're going to do something, you got to do it right. I've always been a big believer in that, and I definitely <laughs> did on that occasion. I mean, yeah, that that is a uh, makes me feel a bit sick just hearing you say it. To be honest with you, but um, as you say, you've completed them all there, haven't you? At the time, being young, um, what was sort of the the medical advice on the back of that? Did did they think you were going to make a full recovery, or did they sort of know at that point that it'd be difficult to come back? That year, we had five of us tear our ACL, which is is pretty unheard of. And I was the fifth of the five. So I'd actually seen four before me and, and seen their prognosis and seen how they got on. So I knew it wasn't good news. Um, but actually going into to see the surgeon uh, was the worst of all. I only wanted to hear that I would be able to play again. Um, and before I even managed to get that question out and, and ask him if that would be the case, he actually let me know that I might never be able to walk unassisted again without crutches. Or, or without the help of some apparatus. Uh, so that was really scary. Um, obviously, then it, it, there was kind of a shift in my mind that I one I had to learn to walk again um, before I could. Uh, like the saying goes, you got to le- learn to walk before you can run. Uh, and playing football kind of was pushed to the back there. I just had to learn learn to stand on my own two feet again. Hundred percent and. And how were you emotionally and mentally after walking out of that meeting? And I know that seems like an, an obvious question, but did you have almost that, no, I'm going to prove them wrong? Or was it almost you sort of everything you worked for had gone and it, and it almost broke you emotionally as well? Like I, I said at the very start, this was one or two weeks before I was going to sign my first professional contract. Uh, and I'd been progressing so well that I think it would have been a pretty sweet deal as well. So that was extremely, extremely frustrating. Um, and, and yeah, obviously there was all the regular emotions that you get with any career threatening injury. Uh, there was sadness, um, you know, regret that I hadn't, or, or that I had eased off the gas and hadn't tried to get to that ball. Um, one thing that really sticks in my mind was, was kind of the surreptitious timing of it, because after that game, uh, I went back to my digs on my crutches, and as I entered the door, my right clip, uh, my right crutch slipped on a letter on the floor. And when I opened it, I'd just been called up for the Euros for Wales under 21s. Uh, so oh. that that kind of added fuel to the fire, and it wasn't a nice night that night at all. I can assure you. Um, oh. But yeah, you know things happen, uh, and you got to get on with it, I guess. And, and what type of support did you receive from, from Aston Villa? I should say, did that professional contract, was that rescinded that offer or what happened there? But what the injury did is it took away all my bargaining power. Um, it's, it's a bit hard to judge how the player is going to come through an injury as violent and visceral as an ACL tear. Now, Ruud van Nistelrooy, Roy Keane are two players who've had ACL tears and went on to have pretty decent careers, but mine wasn't just an ACL term, mine was ACL, MCL, and both medial and lateral menisci, so it was a pretty big deal. Uh, obviously, you can imagine if the surgeon's saying, hey, we don't know if you're actually going to walk properly again. Now, why would Aston Villa offer me a five-year deal on two grand a week when they don't know if I'm actually going to be able to walk uh, in a year or two years' time? 
So what Aston Villa did is they offered me the bare minimum contract they could on a one-year deal, um, £450 a week, one year. Uh, and then after, uh, on the culmination of that contract, there would be a one-month rolling deal um, to see how my knee fared. But things didn't really go to plan. You you mentioned there that you were things didn't go to plan after that. What was the kind of process for the next sort of twelve months or so, Jason? Were you brought back into the into the fold, or were you? How was that done with with you with the rest of your teammates? It was a tricky time to be honest, because like I say, it was it was the week before my eighteenth birthday, uh, so it was the second year of my two year scholarship. So this was the year that I was going to be bumped up either to the reserves or to the first team. Um, so they were kind of in two minds whether to give me to the uh, academy physios, who I was with at the time when I did my injury, or whether I was going to go with the res- reserve team physios. Uh, and I just felt like damaged goods at that point because they were just uh, palming me off to whoever had space. Uh, I ended up going with the under-18 physios, and I think justifiably in the eyes uh, of Aston Villa because they wanted the reserve team physio to to take care of the players that were fit and get them back fit. Whereas these under 18 physios could just deal with me uh, and I'd be ready in a year's time. Um, but to me, that, that already felt like I'd been shunned a little bit uh, and they didn't really value me anymore. Um, it, it became quite apparent as well with just with the way I was treated around the ground. Um, once once you suffer an injury to that extent, it's it's really hard to convince people that you're going to be of worth to them, um, and and that's really how I felt at the training round as well. It would it became more of a chore going to the training round and doing all the exercises, learning to walk again, um, and I didn't really in, well, understandably, I didn't really uh, enjoy that year that I was out injured. When you say that they they were treating you differently around the the ground. Could you give us sort of some examples of that? I sound like I'm moaning, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if you've read in the papers recently, but Aston Villa have um, been called out by a, a number of former players for their treatment of the players, particularly in the academy. Uh, and there was one individual in particular that I didn't see eye to eye with, and a lot of people haven't um, previously. Uh, I remember one occasion when I was coming down from lunch with my friends, and I think literally I was just walking on my crutches and maybe I smacked one of them on the arse, uh, just having a laugh, trying to boost my mood and boost theirs. Um, and, you know, this this guy was walking down the other way and he saw me maybe do that um, and, and having a laugh and he couldn't understand in his head why I would be so happy, whereas I, I wasn't happy at all. You know, I would, I'd been crushed by this injury. I was just trying to boost my morale. But he said to me there in that corridor in front of everyone, he said, uh, I don't know what you're laughing for. You have no use for this club anymore. Um, so, yeah, that that definitely wasn't nice. And I wish I'd have used the crutch again. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't. That's one regret I have, uh, that I didn't give him a little crack with it. But I think he got his comeuppance. We, um, we did an interview not long ago with um, a guy called Pete Lowe, who was involved in the sort of investigation and bringing that sort of behaviour to light that was going on at Aston Villa. Um, so he's, he, he spoke a little bit about it to us a few weeks back. Is that type of thing common do you, from what your experience is? Or is that 
did that feel quite surprising when it happened? Surprising coming from that individual, not at all. Um, there's there's often a thought in football that says uh, you need to make it in spite of your coaches instead of with their help, really. Um, the coaches we had at Aston Villa were very, very old school. Now, I actually didn't mind that when I was fit because they would push you as hard as they could uh, physically and mentally, and that's actually what I responded to. But there needed to be a shift in that mentality when I was obviously so vulnerable mentally and physically uh, once I'd had the injury and there just wasn't that care. You know, they just weren't the type to put their arms around, well, their arm around you and, and kind of check on how you were doing. Um, like I say, as soon as I suffered the injury, I felt like damaged goods and I was kind of cast aside uh, and everything that had gone beforehand had been completely forgotten about. You know, two weeks before I'd done the injury, one of these coaches said to me, I could be the best player ever to come through the academy. The week before that, um, I scored four goals in a 10-0 win against MK Dons. So things were going very well. Um, it's just unfortunate that the injury did happen. But that's the nature of football. Yeah, very much so. It, and about, was it about 12 months after your injury that they, that they um, eventually sort of deemed you surplus to requirements or let you go? How did that process come about? Regrettably, I tried to rush back. Now, they'd quoted me 24 months out of the game. Um, so it had gone down from, you might not be able to walk again, to, OK, you're going to be able to walk, but we'll see how you get on with playing to 24 months he'll be back playing. I actually came back in eight months, which looking back, I wish I'd have taken my time, to be quite honest with you. I know I had that 12-month uh, deal, which gave me some security, but in, in, in essence, it really didn't because I felt like I had to come back as soon as I could to prove myself uh, to the reserve team manager and to the first team manager. So I was always in a rush to get back fit and get back playing. Uh, and my knee suffered because of it. I ended up having another operation on my knee. Uh, I had multiple, multiple subsequent injuries, uh, muscular mostly, um, and my body's never really recovered. You know, I've still got two torn quads. Uh, I've had a hip operation as well. Hip operation before my 94-year-old nan. So, <laughs> yeah, my body's, my body's uh, not doing great, but... Yeah, I, w I, I wish I'd have taken my time in, in that rehab year. Uh, after that rehab year, I was given four months on that rolling contract, as I mentioned. Uh, and again, things at the start of that year were looking great. I was flying in pre-season. I've always been one of the fittest uh, and fastest in every team I've gone to. And that was no different when I was training with the first team. And things were looking so good that they were even considering taking me on, on the pre-season tour. I think it was either to Malaysia or something like that. Um, but unfortunately, I got a hamstring tear two days before we were set to fly out. So that's that's how that happened. Um, and yeah, more more regrets really due to injuries. But what can you do? That's that's football. And when you were told that you weren't being kept on, how how does that come about? Do you get called into the manager's office, or is it done over the phone? How does how was that played out? really remember how this all transpired it was it was very much I think they felt a bit guilty with how they were treating me in the end uh, and it was more they just let my deal run out and then they expected me not to arrive the next day there was no real um, 
kind of guillotine coming down and, and severing the head of the relationship that we had. Uh, everything was just very hush-hush. They swept in under the carpet um, and told me I wouldn't be getting another deal. So on the 31st of that month, that would be my last day. Um, and I, I literally had to go and say bye to the coaches. Uh, there was no no kind of get well soon card or or good luck. Um, I had to go and say bye to the coaches and say, listen, today was my last day. They probably didn't even know. I won't be back tomorrow, but all the best. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't the end that I'd, or, or even the start that I'd envisioned really to my footballing career, but that's that's how it went. And at that point then, and, and I guess we, I probably already know the answer at this point, but having suffered such a, a, a damaging injury at a young age and then been let go, did you get any support in terms of, you know, help for what you were going to do next either from Aston Villa themselves as a club or from the PFA or the FA or any other sort of bodies within the game if I would have searched for it maybe um, but at the time you got to understand my emotional state here I, my dreams are in tatters my knees in tatters I didn't know which hand to wipe my ass with to be quite honest with you I was completely mentally blocked um, so I was in no state to kind of look for further opportunities. My reputation was non-existent because I'd been out for 12 months. I hadn't done anything in the game. I'd been a good academy player, sure, but um, now we were in the professional game. I was 18 or 19 years old even by that time. Um, so, yeah, I didn't have an agent. They couldn't offer me 20 clubs. I didn't, they couldn't sort any exit trials for me. But, yeah, it's disappointing that there was no aftercare from Aston Villa. Um, and the PFA weren't proactive in reaching out and trying to sort something out for me. Now, I can't speak too badly of the PFA because they have helped me further down the line with funding uh, and education. But this is what I'm really advocating for and championing for with what I'm doing um, with my my charity, my football mind, is I want people to take a more proactive approach to life after, life after football. I feel like it's very reactive at the minute. Um, and and it's only when someone consults that help. I think there needs to be protocols in place to ensure that the transition is much more smooth if someone's not going to have a career as a professional footballer. And one of the things I often, I mean, it, it, it's something that I often wonder about players similar to yourselves, and I suppose it may be slightly different because you obviously got such a... a, a, a a big injury that affected how you, how you were able to play. But in terms of, you, as you say, you were at Tramia from, from the age of 10 and, and, and at the point that you left Aston Villa, you're 19. So it's it's the best part of half of your life has been spent in academies. And and we all know from, from being young lads in school, the lads that were in your school, that were in academies, everybody knew who they played for. And, and you and I are very similar age. So... I suspect that it was probably quite similar for you when you were in school that people would have known that you were, you know, Jason the lad who was in the academy or Jason the lad who's 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 going to be a footballer and that type of chat. Was it hard in terms of on your sort of confidence and self-esteem being told that you're no longer good enough or you're not required anymore and and almost going from being, you know, Jason the the, the lad who plays for Aston Villa to just you again? 
like, like I say, I developed this relationship, uh, this um, kind of idea that I was going to be the next Michael Owen. Uh, it was kind of inescapable for me because I'd, I'd gone to his primary school and high school. I played for Harden Rangers in Flintshire County, uh, which same as Michael Owen. And we shared a lot of similar traits. I was very fast and had an eye for goal. And obviously Michael Owen does too. So that was always my story. I was going to be the next Michael Owen until, you know, I, I did that injury. Unfortunately, I copied Michael in that regard way too soon and before all the trophies and medals. Um, but yeah, it was, I think that's the toughest part for me. That it was really hard to face my mates again um, once I've been released. Because uh, like you say, football's unique in the sense that it's not only uh, a pastime, it's also your profession. So, so much of your personality, your self-worth is wrapped up in that one thing. And then when it's taken away, you're kind of left looking for scraps. You're not sure what you are anymore. So when I wasn't Jason the footballer, what, what really was I? I hadn't really focused on anything else. As I say, football had made me feel the happiest I'd ever been, the most confident I'd ever been. And I now didn't have that avenue to channel um, my, my expressions. Uh, the thing I was very best at in the world, I was no longer able to do to the level that I wanted to be able to do it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the toughest part for me, not being able to fulfill the promise um, and potential that I had. And, and facing up to that reality was, was really, really tough. And did you verbalise those feelings to anybody at that time? Uh, there's a few holes in my house walls that I guess hint at how I felt. Um, <laughs> I, I was very uh, frustrated and angry with what had happened. So I did take it out in that sense. And I think I still do have that tendency that when my mind's not not busy, I'm I'm always thinking about what could have happened, and I think that's just a hangover that I'm going to have for maybe the rest of my life, um, because I'd I'd wanted it so bad, and then through no real fault of my own, it didn't really happen uh, when when it could have. Um, there's a song that says, "If I hadn't seen so, such riches, I could live with being poor." I think it's a song by a band called James. Yeah. Um, and 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 that's really how I feel about football now is that. Things could have been so good um, and I could have been at the very top of the game and, and living my dream. Um, but the exact opposite happened. And like I say, it became more of a nightmare. And that, that time was, you know, we're, we're coming on sort of nine or, nine or ten years from, from that incident and that, that time in your life. Since then, have you been able to deal with those feelings better since then? Or is it is it still... Is it still just as raw as it was when you were 19? Yeah. There's times when it's less sharp and less raw, um, but it doesn't take me long to get back into that, into that feeling of it being so real. Um, with being a footballer, it's like I say, from 10 years of age, football really was a, 24-7 job you know you can't switch off at any single point you've got to be on point with your diet on point with your sleep you've got to make sacrifices you can't go out with your friends no girls no booze um and all the while while you're kind of juggling your your scholastic career as well so you're always tuned in to how can i be the best footballer i can be um and and that's where my mind still goes i i still catch myself now like oh, make sure you have 
your four pints of water this morning. Uh, and the mindset of an athlete, of a professional footballer. Um, my, in the back of my mind, it's always, oh, you can go faster than this, can't you? You can push it a little bit more. You, you might be able to make it. Jason, one thing I was wondering, in the time since then, have you ever spoken to anybody professionally about those feelings? Uh, I have. Even at Aston Villa, I did speak to someone. But here's another instance of of where I think football can do better. Uh, so the club, uh, I went to the club doctor and I said, listen, I'm feeling very down. Uh, I think I might have depression, which turned out I did. Uh, and they sorted out for me to go and see a CBT, cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, but they ended up partnering me up with a 65 year old woman who barely knew what football was. So, you know, it's it's she's not really in best place to help someone like myself who'd just had a career threatening injury and needed guidance and advice from someone who'd maybe been in a similar situation. Uh, and it got to the point where she was holding up pillows and telling me to punch them. Now, that was probably to release some aggression that I had. Um, but I think the aggression was building up because this woman just wasn't understanding the thoughts going through my head. And who can blame her? You know, she was she'd never been an academy footballer. She'd never had hopes of playing professionally. So how could have I expected her to know exactly what was going through my head? Now, I could have vocalized that. Sure. Um but like I said to you before, I wasn't in the emotional state where I wanted to to share how I was feeling exactly. I was 19 years old and my world had been turned upside down. Um, so, yeah, maybe I could have done more. But at the same time, I think football kind of plays lip service to these, these protocols and processes. They try and it's kind of a box ticking exercise. Yes, we sent him to the therapist. Yes, we gave him uh, the pills and unfortunately he didn't he didn't respond to it and then move on um I, I just think there could be such a better approach put in place and did that kind of knock your faith in that process the fact that you'd you'd been, you'd gone to see a, a, a cbt and and done that process and it hadn't helped did that kind of knock your faith in it or was were you aware that you know this isn't the right person for me or did you did you ever go back yeah, so I, I didn't actually go back to one uh, whilst at Aston Villa, but I went back to one, I would say, about two years ago. Um, so, yeah, as I said to you before, it's, it's a hangover that I've kind of carried with me, uh, and it's a lingering effect from from my career as a footballer. Um, so I went to see one about two years ago, but again, old bloke who, who didn't really understand the life of a professional footballer, maybe I would have been best placed just talking to one of the first-team players at Aston Villa, uh, who suffered an injury and how I might be able to get through it. I just felt like it was a round peg in a square hole to send me off to someone who, yes, fair enough, is, is a psychotherapist or a psychologist um, and, and could help me maybe understand the thoughts running through my mind. But at the same time, they hadn't experienced what I had experienced. So how could I expect them to fully understand? Uh, I, just, I just felt like it wasn't an, an adequate... Uh, answer for what I was feeling. And you said that you were em embarrassed to to speak to some of your mates. How did how did your mates react? Uh, it's it's tricky because obviously I'd they'd seen me as Jason the footballer and I'd actually loved that. You know, obviously it it gave me pride, it gave me self worth. Um, 
So for me, it was it was harder to come to terms with that than I think it was for them. Um, and I probably became a bit reclusive um, in my early 20s just because I I had a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that I should have been something that I wasn't. Um, so for me, it was hard to connect with my friends for a long time, really. Um, just because I, yeah, like I said, I felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and regret that things hadn't worked out. You know, everyone, uh, you just mentioned there, some academy lads were at your school and, and everyone kind of tells them, don't forget about us when you're famous. Um, but yeah. you're you're a little bit forgotten about when you don't become famous, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I, I didn't really have all the support that maybe my friends could have given me. And, and I did feel like there was a, a bit of a change in mentality towards me as well, maybe. There was a uh, there was a, a, a guy that we had on the the podcast a little while back called Aaron Connolly who was uh, he, he he footballer up in Scotland and he was at um, some professional clubs when he was younger and then uh, played what's called junior football in Scotland but it, what would be non league in in England mm-hmm. and he was kind of dogged by feelings of of worthlessness and 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 low self esteem that. It's come yeah. on the back of a lot of it had been from not feeling good enough that he'd not made it as a footballer. Is that the type of thing that you could kind of empathise with? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I definitely empathise with that. And I think I still feel it in in my day-to-day life. Uh, if I go on a run and I don't get a PB, I kind of punish myself. Uh, it's, it's kind of a penance. Um, my life sometimes, I feel like I need to be at the top of my game in, in everything I do. Uh, just because that's really what I was used to coming through the academies. You know, if you didn't perform uh, at the best level, they made it very clear to you that someone would come and replace you. Um, and and yeah, it's kind of it's kind of understood on on the side of the player as well. You know, I I need to perform because I need to keep my place on the team and I need to make it as a professional. So it's kind of that unwritten understanding um, that that the clubs have. And I can definitely empathise with with him feeling that shame of not not making it. From reading some of the uh, the blogs and stuff that you were mentioning before, one of the, the the articles that I was reading, you were mentioning what some of your other teammates had done. Um, Ryan and I were 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 having a laugh before about where you mentioned your friend, uh, your teammate, who was a, a son of a farmer and he was doing a pharmacology degree. <laughs> Thought he was going into the family business. I thought that was yeah, funny. yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the, the teammates that you had, from from what I was reading, it seems like quite a few of them have gone on to have sort of successful working lives outside of football. Yeah. Do you think that's a, a coincidence of just happen to be that group of people, or do you think that that sort of the type of personalities that are, that are obviously attracted to elite sports naturally will fall out that you will go on to be successful in other fields? Yeah, I don't think it's coincidental at all. Uh, I think to become an elite level, either academy prospect or player, you do need to have certain traits. You know, you need to be very disciplined, uh, resilient. You need to be obviously skilled as well. Um, You know, the best players aren't always the ones with the most talent. They can be the ones that work hardest as well. So that's another trait you can have. Um, But to make it to that level, you just need to be really proficient in a lot of areas. Uh, and you can obviously take some of those skills that you cultivate from 
the career as a sportsman into other areas. Now, everything doesn't translate. Obviously, I couldn't take a step over into my corporate career, um, but there are traits that do. And I think that's why a lot of companies do actually like to recruit athletes because they know what it takes to, to not only be kind of skilled at your sport, but to also manage other responsibilities alongside that. So when someone uh, interviews me, I always make it clear to them that from the age of 10, I kind of balanced a 24-7 job, that of an aspiring footballer, with my school studies as well, which I got great results in. So, you know, they're just so disciplined. There's so much sacrifice that they make. Um, and, and if they can prove that they can perform both in and out of the classroom, um, then I think that's why it makes it such an attractive proposition for any respective um, employer or recruiter. And you mentioned before about you've got some thoughts on the ways that football academies and, and, and you know clubs can can be better in their approach to, to, to youth and, and younger players. In terms of the current model, where do you think it falls down and, and, and how do you think in terms of specifics they could improve it? Like I said to you before, I think it's the the reactive approach that they have. That just needs to be turned on its head and they just need to be a bit more proactive. Uh, the statistical truth is that 0.012% uh, of players will go on to have a successful career. Now, what happens to that remaining 99.98%? You probably never even thought of what happens to them and, and probably neither did the clubs. Um, but it's, it's not a statistic that we would stomach in any, any other industry, really. Um, and I, I mean, this might be, uh, it was kind of enlightening for me. Uh, to hear this story. I heard it from uh, a guy who actually coaches in the Northwest. I'll be quite vague, um, but he coaches at a club in the Northwest. And he said to me, uh, have you ever thought about the under 23s and what that means? You know, the under 23 system. Uh, and, and that's kind of a scapegoat for the academy system. So obviously the under 23s is a bit of an apprenticeship scheme and, and the academy system is too. And in no other apprenticeship scheme would we accept uh, a success rate of 0.012% because that obviously proves that it's not working. Uh, so what the under 23s, he said, has been brought in to do is to kind of increase and boost the numbers of the academy graduates, if that makes sense. So we can stomach it a little bit more. But again, this is just leading players on. You know, if, they, if they're not going to make it at 18, it's very unlikely that there's going to be a monumental shift by the time they're 23 and they're going to be ready for that first team spot. So I think that's really detrimental. And again, it's reactive approach from football to string these lads along and not be proactive and say to them, listen, guys, you're probably not going to have a career in this game, but let's sort something else out for you uh, where you will go on to be a success. It's a, it's a really difficult um, sort of balance to strike, I suppose, for clubs, isn't it? Because as you say, yeah. to be able to... The margins are so fine at the, the highest level that you need to be able to sort of cultivate personalities that are able to cope with those fine margins. But equally, being able to do that in such a way that doesn't leave people feeling like you did when you fell out of the game is a really difficult balance. And I, I often wonder if it's um, you've got this kind of really quite interesting dichotomy with clubs that... I almost wonder if they do too much of certain things and not enough of other things. So it, it, players are, you know, they'll turn up and all the kits there for them, all the boots are there, everything's done. 
so they don't have to do anything in terms of preparation stuff that you may have to you may have done if you say played for a, a local junior team until you were 15 16 mm. you know making sure you you've got your kit and your boots and all the rest of it but then equally clubs don't seem to do an enormous amount in terms of well-being and that sort of stuff so yeah lads are almost left in this weird limbo where they're used to everything being done for them so they don't have to think too much mm. but clubs aren't preparing them for certain other things so that they've not got that natural ability within their personality to be like you say to go out and find those different things that they need to learn when they go into you know for want of a better phrase the real world almost absolutely it's I liken it a bit to the army, where it's very regimented, very disciplined, um, but but essentially it's very structured. You know, you know, it's a certain point. Let's say nine a.m. You're you're going to be doing your physical training. Ten a.m. We're in the classroom. Eleven a.m. We're doing this. Your day is is kind of mapped out for you, and you just need to focus on the task. You don't have to focus on the structure of your day. So you can kind of just plug in whatever task you're doing and give it a hundred percent. Detach and plug into the next thing. Now, the issue is, as, as you kind of alluded to there, is when you actually have to make that plan yourself uh, and find your own options and resources and, and kind of do things off your own back. That was tough for me coming out of the uh, academy system. Like I said to you before, um, when I left the system, I didn't, I, I had no idea where to go, to be quite honest with you. I didn't know which exit trials were available. Uh, I didn't know how to contact clubs because I didn't have an agent. So I, I made some really poor decisions actually coming away from Aston Villa uh, because I, one, I wasn't prepared for that transition uh, and two, I didn't really have any help. Um, and, and three, yeah, everything was done for me. You know, I had my kit nicely folded for me in the morning, my boots were cleaned uh, and then it was kind of the exact opposite. And my next club, I had to, to clean my own boots, I had to wash my own kit and, and I had to bring some money for the, for the dinner lady as well. So yeah, that was a big change. But just sort of like moving on with, with, with your career then post-Aston Villa, I believe you, you had a short spell with TNS. Was that while working? <laughs> yeah, regrettably TNS, uh, another bad memory, unfortunately. But yeah, that was that was still while working. Um, so that was my, my first club after Aston Villa. Uh, the reason I picked TNS is because I'm, I'm a North Walian and TNS win the Welsh League pretty much every single season. So... It was still a way for me to kind of keep myself in the professional game because it was a professional contract. Um, a relatively good standard, close to home, so I could have some comforts and, and kind of rebuild my career in that sense. Now, the money was, was not what I was uh, on at Aston Villa. It wasn't too far off, to be fair, but uh, I did seek part-time work in the local hotel uh, as well. So I was meetings and events assistant manager. Now that might sound quite fancy, um, but essentially all I was was a barman and I was serving hen parties, uh, stack dues, um, and, and tribute acts, uh, really. That's, that's what I was doing. And my, well, me and Danny can proudly say we've played on TNS's pitch, just not at the level that you played on your own. It's, it's 4G, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's that um, synthetic grass, which is nice to play on if you haven't just had two knee operations. That was so my that next was, question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it was a bad decision on my part because my knee still wasn't right. Uh, I just had the second operation to kind of rectify the damage 
from the first one. Um, and then I was kind of, again, stupidly trying to play catch up uh, in preseason. And I rushed back from that second injury as well, which, which has caused me uh, a lot of issues further down the line. Did you have any run of games, like a serious stretch where you started to enjoy it or was it a battle from the moment you signed? No, from the moment I signed, it was a real, real battle at TNS. My my body wasn't ready. My head wasn't ready. Um, mentally, I was I was a bit of a wreck, to be fair, at TNS, just because uh, my career had gone so far south that I didn't really know how to rescue it. Um, and And to be fair, again, TNS were expected to win the league every single year. Um, but they, they were paying all the experienced pros who'd been there for five, six years. Now, TNS is actually um, full of like ex-Liverpool, Everton uh, academy prospects. But these are players who kind of established themselves at 25, typically, 24, 25, 26 years of age. So me coming in as a 20-year-old, um, even though I wanted to, I, I couldn't really command the first team spot. And it just, it really frustrated me. And I, I couldn't believe that things before the injury had been going so well to now being in this position where I couldn't even stake a claim for the start in 11 in, in the Welsh uh, Premier League side. In, yeah. in terms of your work and life balance at the time, how was, you, how was that like going into a nine to five and, and, Almost being, I don't want to use the word normal, doesn't feel right, but having that sort of get up in the morning, go to work, people telling you what to do and, and not having that professional feel around you putting a football kit on. Well, you said 9 to 5 there and I begin to smile because the 9 to 5 I was used to was 9pm to 5am. Uh, <laughs> I, I was actually in the uh, meetings and events team, like I said, uh, and these were people who were dealing with stag dues, hand parties and tribute acts. So my night began at 9, serving the food uh, and I could be working behind the bar and cleaning away until literally 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, so that was hard to kind of get in for a, a night's work at five and then and then be up at seven or eight to go to training. That was that was pretty tough. Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't even probably go to bed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sometimes I didn't. Um, and then obviously at, at 20 years old and I'm trying to rebuild my career and I'd have to go to the gym and I'd, and I'd have to do everything right and keep on top of of my discipline and trying to eat right at three in the morning when you're absolutely knackered. Uh, it's, it's really hard, believe me. And when you're at that crossroads, um, and we're going to come on to sort of the, the stint in America shortly, obviously um, your dad's a, a professional man, very successful, and, and you're at this crossroads. So did you have to almost make a decision there and then that maybe every train at something else, I'll go back to uni, what what was your thinking to pursue the football and and how much of a part did sort of your family around you play in that as well? Yeah, um, I was never pressured into anything. My parents have been very good in that regard. They've always kind of given me the freedom uh, and distance I've needed to make up my own mind. Uh, I was as well part time working for my dad, um, who who had his own solicitor's practice at the time. Uh, my first job there was picking all the staples out of the carpet. So I think that's what forced me to look into other other lines of work. Uh, so cheers, Dad, for that one. Um, but yeah, that's that's actually when I began looking at, at other options, and that's when I did stumble across the soccer scholarships in the US, um, and and that led to a wonderful 
five years in, in New York where I, I achieved my MBA, my bachelor's, and I met my wife. So swings and roundabouts, really. At, at this point, I was playing for uh, Colwyn Bay. I was working in the hotel as the barman and, and meeting an events assistant manager. And I was actually playing for Colwyn Bay at the time when I started looking into the soccer scholarships. Uh, I'd just fallen completely out of love with the English game and England in general. Uh, and it was around the time that a film called Project X came out. I don't know if you remember that film. I they do, have yeah. A, <laughs> yeah, they have, a, they have a big party with the Red Cups and the, the, uh, the nice-looking girls and the swimming pools, and they get up to all sorts of mayhem. So I watched that film at just the right time. Um, and then, for me, it was a case of... I mean, I'd always got good results uh, in the classroom and, and on the football field, fortunately. So for me, it was a case of kind of picking the right place for me uh, at that stage. And I've narrowed it down to New York, where better to study business than New York uh, and California, just because the lifestyle suited me down to a T. I'm still very active and I'm half Spanish, so the sun, sea and, uh, sea and sand really spoke to me. Uh, from then, it was kind of a case of, of messaging all the college coaches and finding the best soccer scholarship deal for me. And strangely, bizarrely, uh, it actually worked out cheaper for me to go to college in the US than it would have to stay at home and, and go to uni at Aberystwyth. So I think I, I won in that regard. Brilliant. And, and we've talked about education and the youth academies and how did it really prepare you for life outside of football? And this is something that's come up on the podcast a few times about the collegiate system over in the US. And what have you got to say for that and how they mix education with sports and the way that they do? Well, in England, there's such a singular focus. You know, you go into an academy system with the sole aim of becoming a first team player uh, and everything else suffers kind of to the detriment of that. For instance, if you're in an elite academy, it's not uncommon for you to be taken out of school at least one day a week. Now, while that might seem harmless, that is still 20% of your schooling that is being taken away from you. And obviously, your results are going to suffer. Uh, in the US, there is, I mean, they don't really have a, an established academy system. So I guess the soccer scholarship system is their version of an academy. But there's a much more holistic approach to developing yourself mentally and physically you know if you if you uh, go to a soccer scholarship program you're studying first and you're playing second you know it's called student athlete it's not called athlete student so there is a very um personally i love the system out in the states i think they've got it nailed down uh, and it's it's very very good and i would recommend it to anyone who's looking for something different to knocking around in the lower league in in the uk um, and I think it's, it's one, an unbelievable experience. Two, you're building a contingency plan. And three, you're keeping the dream alive. You know, there are success stories that come out of the American Soccer Scholarship System um, in, in all sorts of sports, you, in football, in American football, in, uh, in basketball. You know, Michael Jordan went to a college program. Um, so, yeah, it's they do have success stories both on and off the field. When you were over in the States, how, how did you perform as a student, but also as a player? Did the injuries hold up? Was the chances of pursuing a, a, a playing career out there? Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. I'm not sure my parents would agree. Um, <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, when you have such a, a violent injury as an ACL tear and then the subsequent other little injuries that I had, it's it's really hard not to get injured again. You know, it opens up a, a real cruel and correlating can of worms where your joint is so compromised that other parts of your body um, kind of have to compensate for the lack of motion or the lack of range of that joint. So like I said, I've torn my quad twice. I had a hip operation in the States. Uh, in my first season in the States is actually when I tore my quad. So I tore it in pre-season. So my rookie season, uh, I was playing with a torn quad and it was bandaged every single game. I think, I mean, I should have commanded uh, a starting spot every single game, that's for sure. But I only managed to make like seven full games out of maybe 25 that we played in a full season. So that was a major disappointment for me. But I still managed to get rookie of the year for the for the conference that I played in, having only played seven games. So wow. that's that's really the story of my American experience. I played through injury every single season uh, that I was there. Uh, again, the hip uh, injury came in my last season, and I had to play on through a torn labrum. Um, it's just been I've had rotten luck with injuries, to be quite honest with you. But fortunately, while I was out in the states, I was able to fill my downtime, not focusing or, or lamenting my bad luck on the field. Um, I was able to pour it into my scholastic um, endeavors. So yeah, I ended up graduating with a bachelor's in business administration and then an MBA after that. Um, and I, I got the top grade. And then I actually went to work in New York for a number of different companies in the sports and fitness sectors. So that for me was was kind of recompense for for not having made it as a pro. Um, it was hard work, but looking back, I don't know if I would have changed anything, really. It, it, it was a wonderful experience to be in New York, and I, I hope to go back soon. Welcome back. I've still got Ryan with me. I think, Ryan, a number of the themes, a number of the stuff that, that, that Jason was talking about in that interview are things that we've kind of touched on before, perhaps more from a maybe a secondary perspective of wonder what this must be like for somebody in that position. I think for footballers who maybe make it in the professional game and have a career, even if it's a short career, say like Alex Hay or someone like that, their perspective maybe of the academy system is slightly different from someone who's come out of it and not made a professional career because it's gone well for them. So the system has, has worked for them, if you see what yeah. I mean. One of the first things that I wrote down right at the very beginning of this interview when listened back to it was... Jason talked about entering the academy system at, at, at 10, I think it was, which was a tramir at the time. I I think that's too young. Yeah, I'm, I'm conflicted on it, really. So I've got no problem... <clears throat> sorry. No problem with these clubs having something for 10-year-olds. It's what that something is. Yeah. That I'm quite conflicted on because if it's you're going to train with us and you're going to have a higher standard of coach with a higher standard of facilities because we've seen potential in you... But at the same time, it's not going to feel like it's it's your only opportunity and there's so much emphasis on winning and player trade. And then I think that's the area that we need to look at because it's really catch-22 when you consider these clubs are investing in players. So you can understand that he talked about going for, I think it was about £30,000, £40,000 at the age of 12. Now, if you think, of, if you break that down to somebody bought a 12-year-old for £40,000, it sounds horrendous. Sounds and awful. It sounds like child trafficking. It, they 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 do groom players in a in a sense that it's 
the players have been offered better educations at better schools. To Parents get offered houses Parents and stuff, don't they? Your petrol money may be a lot more than the 25 or 45p per mile. Let's just say that the <laughs> government's off the back for tax. So that's my issue with it. So in terms of suggestions on what we could do better, I, I wonder if there's a process you can put in place where if you purchase a player, say who's 12 years of age or 11 years of age, whatever it may be, that you have to have a legal requirement to keep them through to YTS and offer them this, an education with it. Because if you if you pluck somebody out from an academy and bring them to yours at 12, you get rid of them at 14, 15. Mm-hmm. That's a huge detriment to their life because they've probably suffered in other areas of their life to, to follow that dream. I think as well, one thing that Jason talked about was his sort of him being a footballer and him being Jason Lampkin, the lad who plays for Man United, the lad who plays for Aston Villa or whatever it you know might have been mm-hmm. at the time, was hugely linked to his self-esteem. It was like everything was linked to his self-esteem was to do with him being a really good mm-hmm. footballer. And I just think for organisations with the, the influence and the power, that their brand, the football clubs of a certain standard, you know, Tramia to a certain extent, I think that there's, there's a local weight that that has with it but i think on a on a national and international scale clubs like clubs like villa man united liverpool everton manchester city chelsea the 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 brand and their name is so strong particularly with with young impressionable kids i i i just feel a bit uncomfortable they almost use that to entice them in you know to, to jason talks about playing in that in a tournament for man united against Inter, you know, Milan, Juventus, Barcelona, you know, whoever the, the, the teams were. And I couldn't help but thinking, but you're not playing against AC Milan, you're not playing against Juventus, you're playing mm-hmm. against a group of kids who are wearing a Juventus kit. And I understand they're part of the academy and I, I understand they have to, you know, put them in teams and get them used to it, which is why when we said at the very start of this conversation, for the lads who come out the other end of it and are professional footballers, the system has worked for them because it's developed them and prepared them for that. But mm-hmm. I do think there is a bit of an issue. Like I've played with so many lads who've been released from, from clubs and the only thing they wear to training is the kit that they were given from Wigan or Man United yeah. or Tranmere or anything. That's the only thing they wear, the same thing every time. And I can't help but think that it's like, so much of their reputation, so much of what they rely on for their own self-esteem is just tied up in the idea of being part of this football club because yeah. the, the what comes with the names of those football clubs is so strong. And I just don't think that that's... I think that kids and, and family stuff are so vulnerable. I just don't think that's fair to put that on them. And to be fair, I think um, all those who didn't play at academies at that age still put that emphasis on those lads because I've played for you with lads, honestly, like a, an eight-a-side on a Wednesday night and... Someone go, oh, what's the teams? And you go, oh, such and such is playing. He used to play for Wigan or he used to play for Liverpool. And they'll always carry that tag even when they're older. And there's probably an element of them that likes that. But as you say, it's that they're not that person anymore. And you can see why some people would suffer with the self-esteem massively. We had someone on the show, didn't we, who said, you don't play for Man United, you train with them. Until you're in the first team, you do. that's how we were. Was that Pete Lowe? Did Pete Lowe say something it, like it that? It might have been, yeah. Um, it's, which is a... A very real way of looking at it really it's like one big trial until you make the first team isn't it there's no certainties it's like imagine being told at 14 15 you wanted to be a doctor that you're not going to make it as a doctor and you're like but well, i'm 14 
Yeah. <laughs> like why? <laughs> and it just doesn't really happen. I've, I've done three operations. Just let me let me lose. <laughs> but like, I think that's really what you've just said there, Ryan, is such an important thing. Where you're saying, even now, I mean, we're both of us not far off being thirty, and mm-hmm. we'll play with lads. Some of them are older than us, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, he he, he was um he was he almost played for Macclesfield. He was in Macclesfield's reserve team. Yeah, you know, and, and like it, their whole identity becomes the fact that they almost made it as a professional footballer, which you can't help but feeling if you're in that position, kind of, it must make you feel like, oh, so you're really bothered about me because I used to play for Macclesfield. Like, it's, it, you know, I, I almost made it as a footballer, so I'm not actually worth anything now. And you can see, and that played out with Jason, didn't it? That he was, mm-hmm. you know, he was, you know, he played for the same team as Michael Owen. He was kind of a similar type of player to him. And his whole path was laid out that he was going to be the next Michael Owen. And obviously there are a lot of sort of tangible things that, that, that you know, sort of, can go through and happen and different things and variables and whatever that can get you there but if that's what you're being told from such a young age then you'll just believe that and then the minute that you're not Michael Owen you how can you ever live up to that especially in such a young age with it as well so um I know uh, a a family who's young young lad plays in a Premier League academy and he's been courted by bigger clubs and they've kept him there because he's a bigger fish in a smaller pond and I think he's even gotten to some of the England youth setups now he's been getting sent boots from like Adidas since the age of like thirteen because he's known he's known to Adidas. You think how do they know about him and they send them stuff and they There's lads in, in my school who had that as well. There's yeah. lads who play for Man United in our year and he used to get sent boots as well because they want him. If especially now that the sort of Instagram social media style um, lifestyle, they want them seen wearing their kit just in case. Mm. So not only do you get the the playing element, you get all the stuff that comes with it. And it's a, it's a big fall. It's a huge fall. And it's one that they're not prepared for. We have said a few times on the show that we think clubs are doing more. And we have to stress that because it is, it is, it's not something you're always going to be on top on. No, it's not absolutely. You've always got the answers for, but I suppose. Well, I just wonder if, sorry, right. I just wonder if, because I think clubs are doing more and they're doing better with the scenario that they've, they're presented with. I just think fundamentally there's a problem with, with the academy system i think mm. fundamentally it's flawed and i think every time they try and do something about it whilst it for the people doing it it will be well-meaning they will be meaning to, yeah. to, to to try and do something good for individuals and there will be good work being done but i just think fundamentally i think that's wrong i just i, I mean i don't know what the exact solution is maybe some kind of centralized academy we were talking a little bit to jason about the collegiate system in in america mm. maybe something like that but i mean you maybe you, a centralized um support body for them so do you know how he said jason didn't he, i didn't have an agent to sort me exit trials hmm. maybe this should be maybe agents shouldn't even be involved with, with Mate, i mean that's another thing he could <clears throat> if you're a footballer now a footballer if you're a kid who plays for an academy now and you're 13 14 you could legitimately have an, an agent mm. who takes fees of tens of thousands of pounds for making for, for moving you about the country or mm. moving you abroad i just i just find it so i mean the, jason gave an example of a lad who was from germany who got transferred to barcelona and then it didn't really work out for him that he thought yeah. was going to be the next big thing yeah there was like 15 or something and he got shipped off to another country the, uh, the west the Aston Villa player, didn't it? Was it Louis Barry? He was at West Brom. They mm-hmm. went to Barcelona. 15 didn't work out. Um, I remember a famous um, story of an Italian player joining Man United and they made his, his dad head groundsman on like mm-hmm. decent money, I think, just, just to get him over to the country at a young age. It's 
these clubs are desperate to get the next best thing and that's where the danger comes into it because they're yeah. willing to do anything to get them and often these players they don't end up becoming anything they pick well, too soon well that's it and, and kind of moving us on to the sort of second half of the adjacent story which is about sort of the way that he was treated after the injury and obviously this is all from his perspective, we've only got Jason's word for it. We've no reason not to to, to believe everything mm. that he's saying. And some of the stuff that came out, um, it was actually around the time that we were interviewing Jason about Aston Villa and some of the practices that were going on there. It did kind of give credence to a lot of what he was saying. But the way that he, he, the way that his perception of it was, even if some of the, the details of it, some people might, you know, who were on the other side of it might have some other opinions on it. The way that he was made to feel as a young person in that position was just that he wasn't wanted. I thought it was quite startling, really, and I, I can't imagine it's an isolated incident either. No, I can't, and um, I think you're right at the start to stress it's just Jason's perspective, and there is probably an element of risk and reward in this, so people will do things that aren't natural to them because the, the, the rewards are so great. You could you could be a millionaire by being early 20s if you get it right, so you're willing to go, well, no, I'll I'll, I'll fall in line to a degree, I think, mm. because that carrot's already been dangled there. And once you hit, once you've been one of them 12, 13, 14 year olds that hits the 18, 19 mark with talks of professional contracts, you probably then, it's hard to slow down that uh, feeling of, of, I've got past the hardest part now, I've been that one in a hundred, mm. I'm about to get a pro deal. And Again, as as we've touched on, it doesn't always happen for you. And then all of a sudden you're left with nothing. So he went from Aston Villa to TNS. Now, you would think for somebody at 18, 19 with so much promise, called up to Wales in the 21 squad, you may fall Championship League One or League Two, maybe even National League. But probably just shows what, the extent of the injury, doesn't it? The damage exactly, that it's done. Exactly. Now, what what helped us to form by the sounds of it? Absolutely nothing. And then he only had a one-year deal. So if you're a Premier League club, paying him £450, I think was what he quoted, you just write that off. Yeah. Ride out the 12 months, let him use our club facilities, and then he's gone. And the thing is, it's like he, he, by his own admission, Jason said that he didn't seek out the things that may have been available to him. And I Mm -hmm. think we had, we had, on our Patreon, there's an interview with, with Nottingham Forest midfielder, Joe Lolly. And we were asking him, weren't we, what is available? Like, who? Where do you go if you've got a problem, like a mental health problem or a well-being problem, or you know, even like a kind of the type of thing that somebody in a normal job, in air quotes, normal job, would just take to a union rep? Mm. Where do you go for that? And he didn't know. And I just kind of thought he said he didn't know because he'd never needed it. But I almost feel like with mental health and stuff, and, and we had Michael Bennett on for an interview, didn't we recently? Who's the, the head of player welfare at, at the PFA? Whose interview will be coming out in the next few weeks? He was saying that. He, he was saying that they're trying to do more stuff that's proactive with clubs because so much of it is reactive and with mental health and with well-being, it has to be proactive because people are, are in a position where maybe they don't want to talk and they don't want to come forwards because of the environment that they're in. So you have to kind of seek them out. And I feel like that's where the gap maybe is for, for young players. Yeah. yeah, it needs to be something that they feel confident and comfortable going to. And as we've said a few times, people feel like it will impact their career negatively. Yeah. So it's kind of not the environment for them to do it. And as well, there's some players who make it as footballers and have a good career, but suffer from ill mental health. And then you get the other angle, which is people who aren't suffering, but football causes the suffering, which I think Joel um, fell into that latter category, where I feel like a lot of his his, um, battles would 
directly linked to that injury. So you think football has so much of a responsibility there to protect them mm. because you're going to send this young person off into the world, a different world to a football and one, with all this baggage from something that football caused. And I think there needs to be... And there's probably just too many people going in and out the system for them to yeah. track. Well, that Jason said, didn't he say 0.012% of players that enter an academy at any age make it as a professional footballer? Yeah. And you think... So that's basically everyone doesn't make it. And yet the system the system is obviously geared up for the people who do make it for obvious reason because they're staying within the system and that's where the resources are and that's where you know that's where they're, they're, they're going to work and what have you but i think football almost in a lot of ways doesn't acknowledge how significant that like their influence is on young people especially young people who are footballers and football fans i don't think that they i think they're aware because they use their brands and they use mm. their their name and their weight of influence when it suits them but i think they kind of are disingenuous when they don't acknowledge how significant it is for a young person to be attached to them their brand their name their reputation because it does so much for their own self-esteem and their own reputation and they don't do enough, I think, to recognise how significant it is when they're no longer attached to them and how damaging that can be for, for young people. And I, and I think that's a big problem, which is why when I said right at the start, I think fundamentally, I think there's a, there's an issue with the with, the, with the, the weight that we place on young people in academy systems. They're just so vulnerable. I wonder if um, a lot of the coaching staff over the last 20 years have come from a different era and it's not to point blame at anyone because they probably went through it, but worse... I wonder if now as football moves on and we're having more players who open up who've now retired from the game getting into football themselves, that their reaction will change and football will Possibly. do more because of, naturally because of Lance's experience. So we've had Simon Howarth on recently who's talked about it, Chris Iwalumo, even Joe Lowley, who you spoke about, who's still a player at Birmingham. He just stopped turning up one day and wasn't even contacted. Yeah, I know. I wonder if those days are, are going to be few and far between moving forward as we, as more people, I think there has been an education in football and now it's about putting in a plan to move that education along. It's still going to happen. There's still going to be sad stories, but hopefully, hopefully those people who were footballers who are aware of it and now the people who are going to be looking after these kids. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think because it's so much is geared up about making it as a player, and as we just say from that statistic there, 0.012%, more needs to be geared up to not making it because the overwhelming evidence would suggest you're probably not going to make it. I as wonder a what it is for 16 to 18 year olds. It'd be good if anyone's listening who knows what that figure is, if they could let us know. Yeah, sweet. That too is at Mark and underscore man. That'd be yeah. that'd be useful to know. A lot of those things are kind of difficult, aren't they, to put into context? But I think broadly speaking, I do think it's something that fundamentally, I think football needs to acknowledge a little bit better. And maybe maybe there are maybe there are ways that they're doing that. But it 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 all feels like they're putting a nice nice roof on a house that hasn't got any windows or doors in it yet. You know, mm. I, I feel like you you need to solve the fundamental issues first, but. You know, I don't think you and I are going to sort it right now, but you never know, do you? Um, so I'm going to wrap us up there, Ryan. Thank you very much for your time and your thoughts, as per usual, mate. And thank you to you, the listener, for for listening along with us. I'm just going to pass you to uh, to some signposts. I'm just going to point you in the direction of, of a few players. So the first place that I'm going to kind of reference you to is to LAPS, which is Life After Professional Sports. If you are listening and you are a current or former professional player or a player that's been in an academy that maybe won't be getting a new contract or you know somebody who's in that position there's an organization called life after professional sport which is run by 
by a former footballer called Robbie Simpson, who we had on the show not too long ago. There's an episode with Robbie on our on our feed. You can find on on whatever you're listening to your podcast, and that's worth having a look at. Laps because they're very good at, at helping transition from that footballing world to that non-footballing world. And then, of course, Samaritans, 24-hour helpline. If you ever need anybody to speak to, their phone number is 116123. And you can also phone the Calm Zone between 5 p.m. and midnight. And their phone number is 0800 58 58 58. We're going to leave you now with Jason Lampkin's quick fire. Thank you for listening. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. What's the best food that you uh, used to eat in the States that you can't eat here? Oh, I was already starting to think about mum's cooking, but she wasn't out there. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm not a big fan of fast food, so I, it's nothing like Wendy's or anything like that. But I was in New York, uh, and obviously that's a big Italian area. So there's a lot of nice Italian places in New York, especially if you go to um, Little Italy in Manhattan. There's some really nice places you can find there. It's often said that New York never sleeps. When you sleep, are you a one-pillow man or a two-pillow man? <laughs> I'm a one pillow man, uh, and I'm not a very deep sleeper either. So New York suits me to a T. <laughs> <laughs> um, New York is also referred to as the Big Apple. What is your favourite variety of apple, Jason? Could be a Granny Smith, surely. Yes, I've oh, just eaten a Granny Smith. <laughs> fantastic. Yours wasn't an apple. <laughs> <laughs> um, your favourite football experience as a fan? Well, this is an interesting one because it involves both my teams, but Liverpool's comeback against Barcelona. Who was you rooting for there, Liverpool? Oh, yeah, good question. I was, yeah, I was rooting for Liverpool. If Barcelona had won, would you have been rooting for them? Oh, we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> let's, let's leave it ambiguous. He had his Barca oh, yeah. top on in the first leg and his Liverpool top on in the second <laughs> leg, I reckon. De- definitely a Liverpool fan. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> best player you've played with and best player you've played against? Not Paul Dummett, because no bad memories. <laughs> uh, I did, when I came back for Aston Villa, uh, I played in a reserve team game against Chelsea, and I played against Michael Essien, and he was pretty special. Wow. Um, I also, I actually went on trial for Bolton Wanderers after I left United, uh, and they took me to Abu Dhabi for my trial, which was Kushti, five-star hotels uh, in Abu Dhabi. Um, we played against Sao Paulo uh, at 12 o'clock midday under the foiling sun. And I played against Oscar, who was at Sao Paulo at the time, you know, the ex-Chelsea. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was unreal. Uh, yeah, That's very, incredible. very good player. And we, we could tell then that he was just going to be uh, a superstar. Now he's gone to China and kind of flagged his way into multi-million pound contracts. Um, but yeah, they're, they're probably the best to have played against. Played with... Uh, Jesse Lingard's probably gone on to have the best career um, but Danny Welbeck was the year above me and I played with him a lot uh, and he was just special in the academy, he could do things with the ball that none of us could do and we, we all thought he was actually going to be uh, the next big thing Injuries yeah. permitting, he probably probably would have been, wouldn't he? Yeah, exactly and, and I did actually play with Rafael Morrison he was the year below me um, but I, I wasn't as impressed with, with him as maybe Sir Alex and Rio Ferdinand uh, have been um, and been quite vocal with in recent interviews. Mm. But I, I think he was a great five-a-side player, but for 11-a-side, he, he wasn't disciplined enough in, in my eyes. Yeah. 
Wham kick is a Wham's Ravel Morrison. <laughs> Can I just say it's no wonder that Bolton got into financial mess if that was their pre-season for the youth team's five-star Dubai hotels yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Wamkin blamed for demise of Wham. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get slammed in the press after this, aren't I? <laughs> it is.